pro this, anti that, team this, political party that. You know, so many people today are trying to fit in with a group and it really feels like if you're not 100% in with every position that that group takes, sorry, you're out. The extremes are taking over everything and so many of us feel lost in how to navigate that because the experiences we have are usually not that extreme. They're more nuanced. They're more both sides somewhat understanding where they're coming from. And I feel like we've lost the ability or we've lost the art of debate. Hey, I'm Katie O, your host for Curious Katie O. And in this podcast, we delve deep into all my curious thoughts that tend to be as random as I am. So if you're like me and are curious about a thousand things, I'd love to get to know what you're interested in. And maybe that can be a future segment or future episode. So today I wanted to talk about this idea of debate because I think people don't understand what that actually means. And if you look at the founding of our country, it was really built on this idea of understanding how to debate. They had to debate everything from the laws that we would enact to the way that the country would be structured, to who would vote, how they would vote, what the rules would look like. And so what happened is these individuals would sit in rooms for days, weeks, And people would really talk about their side, and the other side would sit there and have to listen, sometimes for hours. And I feel like what we've lost from that is people's capacity to not only listen to the other side without tuning it out, picking up their phone, clicking it off because it gets too uncomfortable, but we've also lost this ability to understand that by learning what the other side thinks, you can actually have an intelligent discussion or debate. And that's what's required for debate. You have to understand the other side to know what points they might bring up, what things are important to them. So that way you can either respond back or acknowledge that as a shared truth or shared fact, but that you interpret it differently. And I feel like today this idea of listening is really a lost art form. It's a skill we all need to understand and we need to get better at. Um, And as we lose the ability to listen, what happens is we lose the ability to really recognize that the other side might have some valid points or experiences in their life that are driving where they get to. So think about today's dialogue. It's a bunch of sound bites in a vacuum. Um, I don't have cable news, but if you did, You know, for 24-hour news, they sure don't want to talk about things for very long. It's this idea of, I'm going to bring on the most extreme on one side and the most extreme on the other. I'm going to give them each 30 seconds, um, and they're going to debate their point, and nobody's going to listen to the other side or respond. Things that aren't true aren't going to be called out because it's not actually a debate. And we figure out why things feel so confusing and so overwhelming. And the extremes are not the masses. It's a small group of people. Um, And the big problems that we have to try to work through and figure out often require nuance. So there's no place for these long discussions. This 24 hour news cycle in 30 second increments isn't working. And for anybody that says, oh, people don't have the attention span, that's not true. People listen and watch three hour podcasts good, bad, or indifferent. You might not like Joe Rogan, but if he wants to get into a discussion, he'll take three hours and ask a lot of questions and listen and push back or agree or change his thinking. 
you know, that's probably the closest form of debate that we have today are these podcasts or YouTube channels where people get into a topic and spend time on it and don't worry about the clock or the next commercial break. We've created these areas where people are just isolating in echo chambers. So everything that they're hearing is reinforcing what they're thinking. And it's no wonder that when things happen in the world and they go, well, how is that possible? Everybody I talk to thinks this. It's like, well, you're not talking to the right people. You know, the word other, let's put it in quotes, other used to be your family, your friends, your neighbors. And so you grew up around people that thought differently than you. And, and it was fine because you knew them as people. But now with people getting into these smaller and smaller groups, other is now not a person. It's this entity, this thing, this weird nebulous person that you've never met or heard of. And you can group them into this idea of being evil or terrible. And you put these character traits on them that really aren't valid. They just have a different experience than you, which is typically driving their position on something. And you don't always have to agree within the group. There might be five or six things that you agree on and two that you don't. Is that okay? You know, can you have that kind of a debate and discussion? Or if you're not in 100%, do you need to go find a different group? And with all of the different things that people can debate or be pro or con about, would you ever find a group that ever fit you? So I thought what might be fun is to simulate what a debate might look like if I was to debate myself, which first of all is a scary idea, but I thought I'd pick something um, that my husband and I have debated somewhat for years, um, the death penalty. So my husband is very pro-death penalty and I am 100% opposed to it. Um, and we come at it from different angles, we come at it from different positions. We come at it from different um, experiences or things that we've seen. And it doesn't mean that we think either one of us is evil. We just have a very different view on this topic. And so I thought what I would do is really do a style of debate on this to show you what this looks like, because it's really about you being able to understand and articulate not only what you feel, but what the other person feels too. So I thought I'd do like an opening of each side and then some responses back. And the responses back, I think, are the critical piece because that's what requires you to actually listen and understand what the other side said and be able to respond to it. So let's start with the pro-death penalty side. Pro-death penalty is there because some crimes are so horrible and so horrific, that is the only response and just conclusion to what they've done to society. The mentality of an eye for an eye might be the only punishment that fits that crime. Something so malicious, so hateful, so terrible, that individuals that choose to commit those crimes in our society cannot be allowed to live that the risk of something, some minor infraction or some minor challenge or some minor error that was not done out of maliciousness, but done you know, because people are people, could risk letting someone so terrible get back out into society and commit more crimes. You know, if you commit murder and you kill people, 
what you're saying is that I don't value their life. And so we shouldn't value yours. You sacrifice your right to live when you choose to kill other people. And by having the death penalty, it lets people know that those extreme cases are going to require an extreme sacrifice from you if you choose to commit them to hopefully deter you or others from committing those crimes. All right, now anti-death penalty. And you'll see, I'm a little bit like skewed towards this, but I really try not to be. Um, so being anti-death penalty doesn't mean that you don't think people should be punished for crimes. It's just that death is so absolute and people don't always get things right. Sometimes people make mistakes and it's not intentional. It's just part of being human. If you think about how many things a prosecutor or defense attorney has to deal with, there's chances that they might miss something or they might go in a wrong direction and the evidence might appear to fit that crime, but it might not. And so when you choose to kill somebody, that's the end. There's a reason that groups like the Innocence Project exist, right? If there weren't crimes where innocent people were behind bars, they wouldn't have anything to do. And it's actually often cheaper to just keep them in custody than it is to go through all of the appeals that clog up our system, take away time from judges and lawyers and prosecutors to deal with other cases that are important. And because it requires all of these appeals, it ends up costing us more to do. I'm not saying that they should ever rejoin society if they commit horrific acts, but there is a place where somebody might be able to redeem themselves if they're in some of these extreme cases. And so for me, because of the unknowns of the things where people might get it wrong, to me, it just does not make sense to have the death penalty as an option. All right, so here's my response as a pro-death penalty person. The cause should not justify or excuse decisions we make that we think are right. And the laws are set up in these key states that offer the death penalty because they feel that that is the best way to deal with these individuals. The system has checks and balances to catch people that are innocent or people that should not be found guilty, which is a nuance that's important. And the system allows, you know, all of these checks and balances to make sure that we are not executing innocent people. But one of the things that the system does, it seems like, is it allows minor infractions that may or may not change the outcome of what actually happened to excuse a horrific act and might let somebody out, even if they are guilty. You know, in 2023, only 24 people were killed by the death penalty in states. It's not a big number. This is not happening to a lot of people. It's happening to the most extreme cases. And what it does is it eliminates the ability for these individuals to ever get out. I wouldn't want them living next to me, somebody who had killed multiple people, but got out because of a error in paperwork or an error in the way that things were collected or something that really didn't excuse what they did, but they got out because the system allowed them to. I bet you wouldn't want them living next door to you either. All right, so this is my anti-death penalty response to that. So what if it was you? What if you were wrongfully convicted and you were screaming your innocence? 
and you've gone through all of the procedures and the processes and you still were behind bars and scheduled for death. You know, death is so final. Look at the DNA testing that we have today that we didn't have decades ago and how many people have been freed because of that. I don't know what technology might come that could show that I'm innocent in the future. And so by having a death penalty, there's no way for me to come back from that. Yes, only 24 people were killed, but there's about 2,500 on death row. And so I wonder how many of those need to be there. Did all of those people commit enough crimes and do things horrific enough? And are we sure that they're guilty? And if even one was guilty or not guilty, would you want to allow that to continue? And I think that's the honest debate is what we're saying is in a group of, let's say, 2,500 people, I'm willing to risk a couple of people being innocent who are put to death to allow this punishment to continue. And the other group or the other side is saying, I'm saying if even one of those is innocent, we don't want a system that executes somebody who shouldn't be there. That's the crux of the debate. And the death penalty is really there to deter people from committing murders or crimes like this. But research actually shows that murders are higher in states with the death penalty, and there's no evidence that anybody can find that shows that the death penalty stops killing. So now I've got to respond to that by being pro-death penalty. So you asked me to think about if it was you wrongfully convicted. I'm going to ask you to think about the person closest to you, spouse, child. What if they were murdered? What if they were killed by somebody who did something so horrific that now that has changed the entire course of your life? What kind of punishment would you want for them? I'm betting in those moments when it's quiet and you would think about it, that you would want them to face the same kind of final solution that they put on your child or your spouse. This place where they do not get the right to live and eat and talk to loved ones and make connections with other humans. But they lost that right when they did those crimes. And what you're saying is that, you know, if somebody does that and you allow them to live, what you're saying is that those choices that they made don't necessarily come to that absolute conclusion of having the same kind of punishment done to them. You know, when you think of the death penalty, it's for safety of the community. It's for the security, not only the community, but the people inside of the prisons. It's a punishment for a crime that they've committed. But a lot of times for the family and people involved, it's about resolution. It's about this final closure on usually one of the most horrific things in their life. And it doesn't mean that you forget. It may mean that you forgive. But what it really means is that that family gets to see what that resolution looks like. And it's a set time period that they can experience that. So now is an anti-death penalty response. You know, I'm not sure that you would ever get over losing a family to murder or something horrific like that. I would hope that I have forgiveness, but I might not. And I might always carry that anger. But the chance of getting it wrong would weigh more 
especially if you find out that you got it wrong after that individual was no longer with you, then the grief that you would carry, that you're going to carry regardless. All right, so let's talk about that debate, right? So I had to research different sides of it. I had to dig into what I thought would drive different angles of that big issue that a lot of people have differences of opinions on. You can tell I'm skewed a certain way, but it required me to see the other side of it. And it's a debate that many people are passionate about. There are people that have their life work dedicated to trying to figure that out on both sides. Debate is not an argument. Oftentimes an argument is about feelings. Debate is about educating yourself and understanding the other side's position and understanding your positions. One of the things that you'll notice is that in the responses, they were often done in rebuttal to something that was said. And what does that do? That lets that other person know that you're listening and that you heard what they said. Doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with it and you can't argue points without really knowing and listening to what they're saying. Debate can change thinking. Obviously, we've seen that. But what I think debate does that we're missing is that it really shows respect for the other side. When you have to research the other side of a topic, it forces you to step into the shoes of someone who's not you. It forces you to look at what the experiences are of the individuals on that other side. And it forces you to consider some of your own beliefs and understanding. Debate also requires you to dig into facts or data or stats. You know, what does it say? I feel like the death penalty should deter people, but the research doesn't show that. So what does that mean, right? I have a feeling, and often what I think we see nowadays are feelings debating feelings, where facts have just gone out the window. And you have to know not only your experiences that brought you to this solution, mine is that I listened to a bunch of podcasts and murder shows and started really with serial. This idea that people might be behind bars that shouldn't be there. Does my husband listen to any of those? No. So my experiences on this idea that there are people in prison, probably several of them, that shouldn't be there come from my experiences of what I engage with. His doesn't. His comes from more, if this is the law and this is what the law says, then we should follow the law. And so it doesn't mean that our experiences are bad. They're just different. And I think that oftentimes when people want to have a discussion with somebody or a debate, they think that if you don't believe how they believe, there's something wrong with you or you're evil or you're bad or I can't be friends with somebody that's a R or a D, depending on how they vote, right? But what you don't realize is that they usually got to that place through some of their experiences that shaped their positions, shaped their beliefs, shaped their experiences. And if you're naive enough to think that everybody has the exact same experiences as you, then you deserve to have a narrow group that you interact with. But the value, and I've lived in you know areas and regions of the country where I have not always been what everybody around me thinks, but it's allowed me a lens to understand how they got to that point, what drove them to those beliefs, 
and to potentially share some of my experiences that were different that led to my understanding or beliefs. You know, debate is about just opening someone's eyes. And if you do it right, it forces you to try to understand the person looking back at you and take a small walk in their shoes. So what I would challenge you to do is think about if you belong to a group or an organization or a team or a political affiliation, whatever that might be, you know, your duty is to question what they're saying. Question the facts that you're getting. Question the other side. Learn, listen, try to understand where they're coming from. You might learn something. You might change your position on something, but you might not. You know, part of it is about finding your own path. And it might not be as absolute as the group that you're affiliated with. It might not be straightforward. There might be pieces where you understand both sides and don't take a strong position on something. And that's okay too. When you listen and feel listened to, you have a better shot of actually getting to a resolution with someone. And as you think about the big issues that are facing so many of us, whether it's individually in our communities or in our country, by not listening and not feeling listened to, people don't go into things wanting to work with somebody else. So I'd encourage you to flex your debate muscle to try to understand someone that might have a belief that's different from you. I'd try to flex it by understanding where they're coming from and making sure that you understand why you believe the way that you believe. I would practice debating, not arguing. So how are you taking the points of the other side, acknowledging things that might be true or that you might have a shared sense of feeling on but ultimately have a different outcome at the end of it. And debate, it's okay if you both walk away without changing the other person's mind. You know, it's not about winning. It's not about making sure that everybody believes what you believe. It's about understanding how to work in a group or a community where you can at least have a discussion around topics that are challenging that people don't necessarily understand, but seek to understand, and that by being respectful and listening to them, it may bring both sides to solutions or ways of thinking that have a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of values and direction. So debate's been something that's been on my mind for a while, so that's why I thought I would do this topic. Um, I'd love to know what areas you would debate on that you've actually researched the other side and learned what they thought. You know, connect with me at curious.kdo at gmail.com or Instagram at curious underscore kdo. And I'd love to hear what you think. You know, some of the, the best, we'll call them politicians of our time, if you think of John Adams or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, they made big moves and were able to shift the country and help us define at least initially what it looked like because of their ability to debate, not only to share their views, but to listen and understand and scope and respect people's views that differ from them. So as we get into this heated political season that I'm sure is coming up in 2024, think about how we actually debate and are we doing it from a place of listening and respect 
or are we doing it from a place of sound bites, trying to just articulate our point and move on to our echo chambers that we feel comfortable in. 